Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good morning, everyone. My name is Leanne Harling, and I'm here at EACT in Barcelona with uh, Dr. Doug Matheson and Dr. Irina Rendina to talk about surgery for N2 disease. Um, so it's a hotly debated topic. Let's start perhaps by saying yes or no, surgery for N2 disease. Yes. Yes. There we go. We have a oh. universal agreement. Yes. Shall but we? it's not true everywhere. You're right. There are some places that think it's still not an operable condition. But I th certainly in North America, it's, there's consensus that it's uh, a surgical disease. So how simple is N2 disease? It's very complicated. It's uh, a mixture of uh, N2. You have single station, multiple station, intranodal, bulky disease. So it's, uh, that's part of the problem. It's not just one topic when you're talking about N2 disease. We'll take a European and an American perspective. We'll start with you, Erin. What do you define as operable N2 disease? Uh, up front, I think there is no operable N2 disease. Uh, I, I think that uh, all kinds of N2 disease, as Doug has pointed out, which is a very heterogeneous disease, have to be treated, have to be diagnosed first, then treated initially by some kind of... Uh, of medical uh, treatment, which we will talk about later, and then eventually operated later on. And yourself, Dr. Matisse? Well, uh, some people make an argument for surgery for N2 disease, and there are more favorable findings in N2, but the point I would make is that even in the most favorable circumstances, uh, low right paratracheal single node intranodal disease, with surgery maybe you would get a 30 to 35% cure rate. But if you look at that and you think of what you get overall cure rates with neoadjuvant therapy and N2 disease, those who have surgery for this most favorable subset, I think, would probably have a, at least double that cure rate. So uh, I think some people make an argument for surgery, but I, I don't think it's the right approach. I think it should be preceded by some form of therapy. And I think the issue of staging is really important. I think if you have N2 disease, in, in my opinion, uh, mediastinoscopy should be the way to stage the mediastinum. I, I wouldn't rely on EBUS to stage the mediastinum for N2 disease. I think you learn a lot from the mediastinoscopy that you don't get from EBUS in staging. It's an alternative to mediastinoscopy, but for N2 disease, I think you want to be absolutely certain what you're dealing with. So is your practice to stage everybody with mediastinoscopy if there's a suspicion? For if, if we suspect N2 disease, that's correct. We would do a mediastinoscopy. It doesn't mean that they may not have had an EBUS that would preceded that by the referring doctors, but we would always do uh, mediastinoscopy. And in a separate setting to the surgical procedure? Um, I'd say about half the time, and the other half we do it at the time of surgery and rely on frozen sections. And yourself, Dr. Rendina? 
Well, uh, the, the way we do it is, the, is as follows. We do CT on everybody, of course, and, uh, and um, PET scan on all patients where uh, N2 disease is suspected. And we do mediastinoscopy or EBUS, and we can discuss which of the two uh, is, is most appropriate for each patient, uh, only if PET CT is positive, upfront. This doesn't mean that after induction chemo or chemo radiotherapy, we uh, necessarily rely upon PET CT for uh, for for uh, diagnosing uh, persistent N2 disease. We usually don't rely on PET CT after chemotherapy because there's a lot of false positive and false negative after chemotherapy. The nodes respond to chemotherapy differently from the primary tumor, and. Uh, the, the uptake that they have on PET-CT is not, is not reliable for diagnosis. Okay. And we've talked about um, induction chemotherapy um, on both sides. What do you, what's your feeling? Should all patients have induction chemotherapy if there's evidence of N2 disease? We, uh, we actually use chemoradiotherapy. Right. Um, I guess our feeling has been, while there's no definitive statement about chemotherapy versus chemoradiotherapy, it's one of the interesting things that after all these years there still is not uh, consensus about which is the best. It usually means that there is room for disagreement and that there are some studies that might favor chemotherapy, some might favor chemoradiotherapy. If I looked at it in a broad way, I think overall if you took all the studies, there is a slight uh, benefit to chemoradiotherapy. Uh, the complete response rate is higher, mm -hmm. uh, the nodal downstaging is higher, those are good prognostic factors. Um, and so uh, most people shy away from it uh, 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 because of the complications that radiotherapy might uh, uh, add to the whole picture. Uh, that's not been our experience and so we've preferred it. We have a high rate of uh, downstaging when we use chemo radiotherapy and not really a higher incidence of complications. So we've always used chemo radiotherapy, but there's plenty of argument to be made for just chemotherapy. And the European perspective? Yes, well, as Doug said, this is not a European perspective. Oh. As, as you know more than well, you, Europe is not the united uh, uh, territory. There's uh, room for disagreement also within okay. Europe. I can tell you my point of view. My point of view is that there is no evidence that chemoradiotherapy is superior to chemotherapy alone in an induction setting, and uh, the, uh, the amount, the percentage of downstaging doesn't necessarily reflect on an increased survival. And uh, as Doug says, there's room for controversy in this field. Uh, what we use is chemotherapy, and we keep radio radiation therapy for the postoperative setting. Mm -hmm. We use radiotherapy uh, constantly in the postoperative setting. And do either of you, I and mean, there is some debate about early surgery and not postponing surgery for chemotherapy and N2 disease, does either of you think that there's a role for early surgery prior to chemotherapy? I don't. Uh, as I said, there are some who believe that, but they quote uh, survival figures for varying uh, forms of N2 disease. Mm that I'm sure would be much improved with chemoradiotherapy. So I, I, th I think, again, the preponderance of evidence is that N2 disease is best treated with some form of treatment before surgery. I totally agree, although there is an old paper that certainly Doug remembers that the, uh, dating back the 80s, 
from the group of Toronto, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, that paper is, is uh, in illuminating because it demonstrated at that time that after negative mediastinoscopy, patients who are taken to the operative um, uh, room and operated on and discovered to have N2 disease only at pathological examination have a survival which is around 40%. So that demonstrates that there might be some uh, presentation of the N2 disease which might be amenable to surgery um, upfront. But let me ask a question to Doug, if yes, I may. Of course, please. If after negative mediastinoscopy, you take a patient to the to surgery and you discover uh, lymph, um, positive lymph nodes pathologically, what is your attitude towards that yeah, subset I, of patients? I think all those patients should then have adjuvant therapy, and it could be either chemotherapy or adjuvant chemoradiotherapy. Uh, many, not that many years ago, I was asked to discuss a paper that said if you find N2 disease at thoracotomy, you should close them give them neoadjuvant therapy and come back, and it made no sense to me that you would ever do that. And there's, there's a, a trial called the ANITA trial, randomized after uh, surgery for incidentally found N2 disease, where they showed a definite benefit to adjuvant therapy, because there is some disagreement as should you or should you not uh, give adjuvant therapy after incidentally found N2 disease. And this, again, one study, but well done, prospective, um, I think would say that you should. Somebody calling in to disagree. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh. Okay. Very sorry. That's okay. No problem. I forgot that. <laughs> so. Um, Maybe I could ask Areno a question. <laughs> of I'll, course, please yes, do. Well, so, Areno, what if you have persistent N2 disease after induction therapy? Say you've completed the chemotherapy and your uh, evaluation prior to surgery suggests that there's persistent disease. I think that to me is one of the essential arguments about N2 disease. I agree, it's an essential argument, but it strongly depends on what your policy is for restaging after mm -hmm. chemotherapy. In general, uh, we do not restage patients that responded to chemotherapy. So we take them to the operating table and uh, they, they, even the patients that have persistent N2 disease have good results. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think? How I, do you I, stage I, your patients? I, I completely agree. I, we, unless there's some progression of disease or some medical contraindication that has developed, uh, we'll get a CT scan, maybe we would get a PET scan, but our intent is to proceed to surgery. Um, I think that re-mediastinoscopy is something I've never been fond of. It's dangerous, its yield is quite low. EBUS may have a role, but if your intent is to operate, uh, I don't think you absolutely need to restage the patient unless there's some suggestion of progression. One of the arguments that uh, I've been involved in, I would say for 20 years, are those people who think if you have persistent N2 disease, you should stop and not operate. And they usually have the support of the medical oncologists and radiotherapists who come up and say, well, you know, with definitive chemoradiotherapy, you can cure 20% of patients. And my pushback has always been, that might be true uh, for a highly selected group of people, but if you take people who've had some form of induction therapy, let's say they've had chemo radiotherapy, two or three cycles of chemotherapy, some degree of 45 gray of radiation, and they have persistent disease, that's not a group of people who with a little more radiation and a couple more cycles of chemotherapy 
are going to be cured. Uh, it might be this favorable group of patients who have single station intranodal disease, maybe you would cure 20%. There have been two really important uh, studies that have looked at that. One was uh, this intergroup trial radi uh, randomized between chemoradiotherapy and surgery and just definitive chemoradiotherapy. It had an 8% survival in the chemoradiotherapy group. There's a uh, uh, North American study that's from a big uh, registry database, 10,000 patients who had proven N2 disease who had, chemo, uh, who had chemoradiotherapy in a definitive manner and had an 11% survival. Most of the studies, ours, others, suggest that if you have persistent N2 disease, you have about a 25 to 30% chance of still curing them with surgery. So again, not randomized, not controlled, but if you compare 25%, 30% versus 10%, I think most people would say you should proceed still to surgery, which has been our approach all along. If I may say, uh, it's a provocative point of view maybe, but I, reading the multi-centric studies that have been produced lately, in the, especially in, uh, in North America, one remains, at least I remain, at least um, uh, I worry about the fact that uh, many patients are enrolled by centers that do very low amount of cases. Yeah. So I think this is a problem. I think that a single, a well-conducted, single center, center study uh, from a prestigious center is much more reliable than a multicentric study where you have half of three-thirds of the patients that are, have been accrued in centers that do maybe 10 cases a year or five Great. cases a year. I agree. So uh, I think that the inexperienced hands, things go differently, yeah. I think. I couldn't agree more. Do you, either of you, what's your opinion on the behavior of the primary tumor in patients with N2 disease? As far as how aggressive would you be surgically? Would you perform a pneumonectomy in a patient with N2 disease? Well, there was a period of time not that long ago, there were two studies that came out that had a very hot, this intergroup study, and there was a study from SWOG yeah. uh, that had a 25% operative mortality for pneumonectomy yeah. following induction therapy. Everybody who heard that said that can't be true. And then many people from institutions that Arino uh, referred to that have large volume of cases found that their operative mortality for pneumonectomy after some form of induction therapy was under 5%, which even without induction therapy is a pretty good uh, result. And I think, again, it gets to Arino's point that in experienced hands, both radiation therapists and oncologists and surgeons, uh, you can uh, safely do pneumonectomy after induction therapy in the right patient. Obviously, you don't have to do it. I think most people would choose lobectomy, but I think it can be done safely. And you're, you yeah, well, I totally agree. And about pneumonectomy, pneumonectomy, it, pneumonectomy is a bad operation. I think pneumonectomy is a bad operation mostly for the patient. And so we have to try to avoid pneumonectomy at all costs. There are technical ways to do that, so and the, the sleeve resections of the bronchus, the pulmonary artery, et cetera, and it has been demonstrated that they have an ex excellent results even after induction chemotherapy and chemoradiotherapy. So in our institution, the, the incidence of pneumonectomy is really very low with respect to the total um, number of patients that undergo surgery after induction for N2. And Arino, you had such a big experience in sleeve resection and, and sleeves of the pulmonary artery. Do you see any increased incidence of complications following induction therapy? No. 
Yeah. No. That's been our experience as well. On the other hand, uh, I would suggest that these reconstructive procedures have a lower incidence of complication and mortality than pneumonectomy. Yes. And again, if I may just um, point out one, one detail, <clears throat> it should be quite unusual for the ideal candidate for um, induction chemotherapy and resection for R2 to have a large primary tumor requiring pneumonectomy. These patients usually have T1 or T2 primary tumors, mm -hmm. which are easily treated by lobectomy, and if the pneumonectomy is due to the infiltration into the bronchus on, or into the hilum by hilar or by N1 or N2, that's another ball game. And um, I'd like to stress the point, especially with sleeves, it's the same as the, the concept of operating on uh, N2 disease, you need experienced people. Mm. Um, I, and if you have an opportunity to save part of the lung with a sleeve, and you've done one or two uh, per year, or a handful over your career, it shouldn't be the first thing that you do. Those should go to a center that has lots of experience. Uh, and, and then again, you get very good results. And on the other end of the spectrum, should we think about subloba resections for patients with small tumors that have N2 disease, or should we be offering a slightly more aggressive approach? Well, again, that's even yet a, a further controversy. Mm. Uh, there are certain patients who have limited pulmonary reserve who may have a tumor, say, in uh, an apical segment of the right upper lobe, where if you did a segmentectomy yeah. and took out the N1 nodes and uh, continued with a mediastinal node dissection because they have marginal lung function, Maybe, but for the most part, I would say that a lobectomy is the standard for N2 disease because of the incidence of finding N1 disease and you don't want to leave that behind. So in the rarest of circumstances. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And uh, if I may add on the, on the point of uh, medical and uh, pneumological fitness of the patient, um, I think that patients who have um, a 35 or even 30% FEV1 and who are otherwise healthy can undergo lobectomy easily, especially if it is an upper, an upper lobectomy. These patients are usually COPD patients with the disease which is usually concentrated on the upper portions of the lung. So if you remove one lobe, uh, you obtain the same results as with volume reduction. Some of these patients not only uh, survive the operation well, have no complications, but even improve the pulmonary function in the long run. So in the post-operative phase, um, we get these patients through surgery. There's the debate about radiotherapy in the post-operative period. What's your thought about radiotherapy post-operatively? Again, I think if they haven't had radiotherapy yeah. uh, and they have lots of uh, mediastinal disease, maybe more than you anticipated, I think combining chemo-radiotherapy is, is reasonable, but again, there's even less data about that. I think, again, the preponderance of data suggests that adjuvant therapy, uh, if you've not used it beforehand, or there's lots of disease, maybe unanticipated, even after neoadjuvant therapy, uh, additional therapy has some value. Is it uh, proven definitively? No, it's part of the controversy. But I think common sense would tell me that if I had a patient who I thought had one node preoperatively that was positive, and yet in the final path there were multiple nodes that I would, I would certainly be more inclined to use chemotherapy, probably not radiotherapy. But again, I think it's one of those areas that's undefined. 
and yourself? Can you repeat the question? I didn't get it. The, is there a role for post-operative radiotherapy in N2 disease? Do you advocate radiotherapy after surgery? We do, because we don't choose it before. Mm -hmm. So the, the answer is very simple. In general, we do radiotherapy after surgery. We prefer to do it after surgery, associated with chemo. Yeah. But that depends, to be honest, we do not have a fixed protocol for that. Mm -hmm. It depends on the, uh, on the definitive uh, pathological report, on the state of the lymph nodes that we remove. So it depends. We discuss usually uh, on a case-by-case -case basis the patients in the, in the tumor board and then decide what to do after surgery. But radiotherapy, we, we always uh, administer. Do you ha also have a very similar case-by-case -case discussion on these patients? Yes. I, and I think that's it ought to be individualized based on the patient. Their circumstances, their fi pathologic findings. So, yeah, not, it's not a disease where one size fits all. And so, I guess to put one controversial final question, are we conferring a survival benefit in these patients? Well, I, I think so. Again, it's, uh, it's hard to be definitive about it. And so you're taking the preponderance of evidence. Yeah. And before I left, uh, one of my colleagues, we had been looking at this, uh, uh, in our own experience. And we had 130 patients over five years with N2 disease, and the survival rate was 54% uh, in that group. Better than it was the last time we looked at it, which was 42%. So the, the chemotherapy had changed a little bit. Uh, I'm sure the radiotherapy techniques had changed a little bit. I was quite surprised. Uh, it, we had a, uh, about a 66% downstaging in the nodes and a 20% uh, complete pathologic response uh, in that group of patients. So if you could get a survival benefit of 40% or 50%, I think that is justified. Is it proven? Uh, not, not proven, but to me it's pretty close to be proven when you take all of the information and, uh, and uh, aggregate it. Dr. Rendina, do you see the yes. same? Yeah, we see the same. I, I see it the same way. See the data that we have about uh, induction chemotherapy are quite old, and uh, uh, there there are no um, randomized studies that could confer confirm the survival advantage. However, uh, we we have very aggressive um, uh, oncologists in my institution, and they their idea is also we cooperate a lot. And their idea is also that whenever the disease is removable, go ahead and remove it. I, I might pose one more question. And this is a question for surgeons, purely a technical issue. So, uh, Reno, if you're planning on using radiotherapy afterwards, or do you think the uh, impact of chemotherapy on the bronchus is such, do you always cover the bronchus after a lobectomy and that you've, you've used induction therapy? No. So, I always do. Um, and I do it for two reasons. One is that I most often have used some form of radiotherapy. Uh, I think the lymph node dissection is one of those things where you may do an extensive lymph node dissection to take uh, the, the nodes out. And so we've always done that. But again, there's not consensus about that uh, as well. We covered the stump when we plan a pneumonectomy. Or, so we prepare the intercostal muscle I'm sure you use the intercostal yes. muscle? Yes. You have to prepare it beforehand in order to avoid crushing it with the, the yes. spreader. So we prepare the intercostal muscle and use it when we plan a, a, a pneumonectomy or, or a sleeve or some kind of yeah. reconstruction. Yeah. Okay.
I think we're out of time, but thank you both very much for thank a really you. fascinating thank discussion. You. Thank, for, thank, uh, you. thank you for having us. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.